Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's par for the course. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few weeks, while in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's not been another incredible week of football, and this week it's two up top. But what a two it is, and that means leading the line around the captain's armband this week is Matthew. So Matthew, how have you been since we spoke last week? I've been fantastic because Fulham haven't been around to ruin my mood. <laughs> and that, and thankfully Wales have been there to, to pick me up a good international break so far. Um, good draw against the United States, uh, beating the Republic of Ireland, which means uh, everything's in our own hands going into tomorrow's game against Finland. So it's all looking up on, from, from that point of view. Yes, it's glad to hear that you're sounding a bit more chipper than you were last week. Let's certainly put it that way. So good to hear, Matthew. You're back on form in that front. And also joining you is Max this week. So Max, it's returned after a two-week hiatus. A lot of scouting has been taken by yourself. So thanks for that input. But how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, very well, thanks. Very well, thanks. I'm really glad to be back. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you back on board as always. Well, a quick hi to Cole, who's off on the scouting trip this week. So hopefully he'll be back in the fold next Tuesday when we've got a lot of Premier League action to dissect once more. So before we talk about all things being par for the course, let's do the social media bits first. I'll be talking to the abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at Dan Tracy, 983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Audio Boom. Well, the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. Right, it's time to go live. And it's also time to do something a little different this week, what with it being the international break and all that. So we don't have any Premier League football to discuss, as in action that's just taken place days ago. But we've got eight weeks worth to look back on. So we're going to use a method called Path of the Course, and to explain that very quickly, we're going to take the pre-season Premier League odds as a guide and compare them to the, each of the 20 teams' current league placings to get a sense of who's overachieving and who's underachieving. So we'll get to the success stories in a bit, shall we say, but first let's focus on those who are failing. And Matthew, I think we're going to have to start in Manchester with both colours, depending on your allegiance, be it red or blue. So let's look at the blue first. Now, both of these teams have a game in hand, so that sort of image and disaster is skewed very slightly. With that said, though, it's not been a great start for Man City. So what's been your assessment thus far? Um, it's been a bit of a weird one. Can I just point out the fact that you've managed to coincide this par thing perfectly, seeing as it was Masters weekend just gone. I, no. I, I, applaud, I applaud you for that. <laughs> I applaud you for that. Um, but yeah, Man City... It's very much, it's been a weird one. We've had some complaints, or at least Pep Guardiola has complained about, you know, a bit of an injury crisis and centre-backs and Sergio Aguero not coming through. But even for a team like Manchester City, I don't think you can sort of hold that up as as the reason why it's all gone wrong. You know, you, can, you could forgive if they were, you know, where were they predicted? They were first. If they were third or fourth and they had Aguero missing, you could somewhat, you could somewhat understand that. But... Even to some extent, with a squad like Manchester City has, they shouldn't be doing as badly as they have been. I don't know if it, you know, he's complained about the fixture congestion and the five sub. If it's just, you know, too much of a strain having to compete on 
multiple fronts with the League Cup and the Champions League. But that doesn't seem to have held uh, Liverpool off, for instance, who are only one place off. So it's a, it's a bit of a weird one because you have to start to wonder, is this all Pep Guardiola's fault or is it a, a mesh of a mesh of all things? You know, like um, with Manchester United, who we'll touch on later, it's, it's really only like the players or the manager. It's one of the two. With Manchester City, you can't really pinpoint that one thing that's going wrong for them. It's a very good point. It's like, where is the the issue? But no one's really hitting their own personal levels. It just seems to be some sort of regression to the slightest degree, not sort of massive, but even that sort of downstep is causing the problems that they've got at the moment. And Max, there's also problems in the red half of Manchester. So how do you think things have panned out over at Old Trafford? Well, not very well at all, <laughs> to be honest. Um, Man City, I think, have, 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 come, up, have come out of the, the first eight games or so um, much better than United. If, if you think Man City could, could win their game in hand and go, you know, fifth and three points off top spot, United could win their game in hand and still be below Crystal Palace. And, you know, as a Palace fan, I'm going to be super honest and say that should not be happening. Maybe after two or three games, Palace might be ahead of United. But you think about the kind of investment that they've had there and it just looks to be it just looks to be really problematic for them at the moment. Man City, I know you're asking me about United, but I'm answering mainly about City to begin with. That's um, all right. City, <laughs> City have, I think they've, they've been all right. They've been unlucky in a couple of games. They've, they've obviously only got two strikers um, and, and both of them have had injury problems this season. You could say that's a, a problem of planning and they should have got more cover. Um, now they've got loads of cover at centre-back, so that issue's sorted, but obviously up front they're having troubles. I don't think Man City will look at the table and think, uh, you know, the, the gap to the top is insurmountable. Whereas Man United, not only have they been losing games, they've been losing them quite embarrassingly. You know, they lost at home to Palace. Again, you know, I think we've beaten the season uh, before last, before this one. Um, but 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 we, <laughs> United shouldn't be losing to Palace t- two years in a row at Old Trafford. Um, with all due respect to my own team. They obviously had a man sent off against Tottenham, but they got absolutely smashed by Tottenham. And it was a real capitulation, even though, as I say, um, Martial got sent off in that game. Um, and and they've really struggled. What's weird is that their Champions League form has been pretty good. And, you know, they won 5-0 against Leipzig, who obviously did well last, last year in the Champions League. Um, and now there's a big disconnect between the performances they're capable of and the performances they're delivering. I think I mentioned that on a previous show. There seems to be uh, a similar problem with Pogba that Arsenal have with Ozil. Um, and given all of the investment that they've had, they seem to be really short of where they need to be. Whereas Man City, I think, other than potentially um, missing a bit of cover up front, I think their squad is generally there for a title push. Whereas United look really, really far off it. It could be five, ten years before they win a title again. And that is not something that a Man United fan would expect. Well, Matthew, if we look at United, they're 10 over par by our scale. Predicted to finish fourth, currently 14th. Now, you're thinking a game in hands. If they win that, then the pitch is a little rosier. And the table is quite volatile and congested. So it's not massively doom and gloom as one would imagine. You know, you're sort of that far behind what you'd expect it to be at the start of the season. With that said, though... When is this upward curve going to kick in, if at all? Because on the evidence of those first two weeks, sorry, two months of the season, there's not much of an ignition spark, is there? Um, the upward turn will will come in when they sack Ole Gunnar Solskjaer oh, and replace wow. him with Mauricio Pochettino. I think that seems that seems to be the obvious way for it to go. Because Man United are a team. Even, you know, as I talk about with Man City, you have some problem. Manchester United with their team should be doing a lot better than they are with the with the players with their players at their disposal. No. How many world-class players do they have? You could argue maybe one or two with De Gea and Pogba on his day. Rashford is somewhere in the mix. Whereas Manchester City don't have that excuse. Man United are a good squad and they just need that little bit of, as you, as you say, a spark to get them going. And I don't think that's going to come with things as they are, with things as the you know as the status quo. So I know it's obviously a bit of a touchy you know, touchy controversial subject and someone put the thing out on Twitter that's basically like a cycle for Man United from good results to Ollie's at the wheel, things go wrong, bad results, game sacked sort or of thing. It will come around eventually, but you do have to get off that cycle eventually to get some more consistent result. And I don't think that Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer is the man that's going to be able to that's going to be able to provide it. So 
I think that if Man United are to get back to where they deserve to be, in quotation marks, then a change of manager is probably the only way they're going to go about it. Okay, so going back to the blue half now, Max, Man City, as we've alluded to, you know, if they win their game in hand, it's not really crisis. So where they're at the moment, yes, they've dropped points, but they can quite easily get back into the fold quite quickly. With that all said, when you consider domestic dominance that they've achieved over the past decade, they're still aiming for that ultimate prize in Europe, that being the Champions League, of course. Do you think this season, with that remit, is that the last roll of the dice for Pep? Or, if there's more failure, does he then stay on and then carry out what can we call a vast rebuild project, an ugly rebuild that might need to be done at the Etihad? That's tricky. That's tricky. To be honest, I think with the domestic titles, he's won, as you say, um, and he's not done badly in the cup competitions either. Um, not not only the Premier League. You know, the the Champions League is the final frontier for them, and that's always how we've kind of measured success for for managers in England as well as the Premier League. Um, obviously, the Champions League is massive. It's massive, and there's a debate to be had about which is more important. But he he won't consider himself a success at Manchester City unless he wins the Champions League. And fans can say <clears throat> it might be a little bit reductive um, to, to the legacy that, that he's kind of left and, and the, the domestic success that Man City have had. But a lot of fans will think, well, we've kind of done the Premier League thing now. It's nice that we're up there and it'd be great if we could keep winning. But ultimately, European European um, titles is where is where Pep Guardiola's legacy at Manchester City will be either dashed or made. You know, his his whole reputation as a manager could could go on could go on whether he wins the Champions League title. And if he doesn't, and if it's another rebuilding project, he might take the decision. I don't think I'll sack him. I don't think that would be particularly fair either. But he might take the decision to say, right, <clears throat> I've had a really good go here. Let me try somewhere else and give someone else that rebuilding project. Matthew, I think you want to add something to this topic, don't you? I do, and it's been something that I've been holding on for for a couple of weeks, but I've never found the right time to bring it up. But I feel now is the time. I think there is we we and um, Carlos Carl particularly has talked about you know Sergio Aguero getting on in the thing, and it only struck my mind a couple of weeks ago. There is one person that I think can be you now if Pep Guardiola does want to stay on and you know usher in the new era of Manchester City with the young players that he's got like Phil Foden being next um, uh, David Silva for instance who's going to be the Sergio Aguero because you know we we on this podcast have our doubts about Gabriel Jesus let's say the only person I and it's just perfect come to mind is um is Haaland the Borussia Dortmund striker oh, yes i think if Pep Guardiola can go to the Manchester City board and pull off one of these like Mbappe, Neymar, right, 200 million, let's actually test out, if, you know, Dortmund, we won't sell him for any price. Let, let's actually push that. We will, you will sign, sell him for this price. I think if they can sign Haaland for, let's say, 150 million, I don't think that's too, too big a push. And to replace Sergio Aguero, who's on the downswing of his career, I think that will be the person that will convince Pep Guardiola to stay. Because, if he can say, right, I get to work with you know, Foden and Haaland, you know, I'm not putting them in the same bracket, but if I can know this is the future of Manchester City right here, this him, him in the midfield, him up front, I want to work with these two. I think if they can sign him, Pep Guardiola will stay. I think if he doesn't get that, then I think he's off because there's not going to be any you know, big time strike, you know, all these strikers that were mainly get talked about, like your Levin, uh, like your Lewandowski's, uh, they're all sort of on the older stage of it. Uh, Haaland has his whole future ahead of him. And I think he can, and I think he can do it at Manchester City personally. That's a very good shout actually, because I think we can all be in consensus that Gabriel Jesus is not the heir apparent to Sergio Aguero at the Etihad. He's good, don't get me wrong, you know, he scored against Liverpool. There are flashes of brilliance, but I don't think he's going to be good enough to take that mantle I think they are going to have to go outside and get someone of that ilk you know a real statement of intent and I think that might be the perfect uh, transition in terms of giving the crown from Aguero to somebody else so that's a great shout Matthew I guess we might have to give it what 6-12 months to see if that ever pans out but hold that thought because that's yours we'll lock that in right let's now focus on some underachievers that have played 8 games so they have no excuses about a game in hand and their situation could improve one of those is Sheffield United so they're 6 over par after a prediction of 14th, they're currently bottom. Matthew, we've touched on it a couple of times, but for those at home who haven't listened before, where's it all gone wrong for the Blades this season? 
Um, I think I really have to bow to Max on this because he was the one who sort of brought this up for first and foremost. I'm not saying he's the almighty genius, but he did say this before any of us on the podcast. It really does come down to one person. That's the fact they've got Dean Henderson. No, they don't have Dean Henderson, who was fantastic last season, was arguably the best uh, the best goalkeeper in the division. And Aaron Ramsdale is a good player i think he's the regular for the england under 21s i know i know he's somewhere in and around the in and around the squad but he's just not the same as what dean henderson was add to that the fact they're missing jack o'connell and that stability at the center of defense and that hit them so late in the window that they didn't really have a proper chance to bring in a proper commanding center back to to fill that role they've tried it with um uh, ben osborne and ethan ampadu but they're just not quite the same so i think that's really it um, yeah you know we pointed out i talked about man city you know they 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 can't have any complaints because the squad they have sheffield united have a reasonable case to make that you know injuries are screwing up our season because they don't have the resources to to fill it out um i think some of it is you know everyone expected them to drop off a little bit this season that's why they were predicted you know 14th as to they finished eighth i think it was last season a little bit of a drop but i think those two those two losses have just helped them plummet down even further and i don't think i don't think they're going to be able to recover from unless and there has been some talk that dean henderson could be allowed to go out on loan uh, again in january there would be a bit of a stretch because they've showed some faith in Aaron Ramsdale, but it seems like that could be, you know, one, you know, last throw of the dice sort of thing. Let's get Dean Henderson, you know, very good goalkeeper back to try and, to try and stop all the goals that we're shipping. I think that ship might have sailed though, to be honest. I think, you know, really they should have tried to get him back in the summer and just extend the loan deal. I think it'd be a bit unfair on Ramsdale. I don't necessarily think it's just bringing back Henderson, which then is the magic salvation. I think there's a couple more issues of rot, shall we say, at Bramwell Lane. But Max, another team that's six over par at the moment is Arsenal. So predicted fifth, currently 11th. So if ever there was a case of one step forward, two steps, two steps back, the Gunners seem to be the epitome of this frustrating lack of momentum at the moment. Yeah, 100%. And what we saw re- recently, which is a little bit surprising, I mean, it was truthful but surprising, is that the manager, Mikel Arteta, um, easy for me to say, he came out and said... He said, we're a long way away from where we need to be. And that is true. And you can see that just by looking at them. But that's a little bit surprising coming from the manager who is kind of leading the project to, to revolutionise them. Um, and it, it, he's just kind of recognising publicly how big the job is. Yeah, it's taking me some time and it's going to take some time more. Um, they made the right steps in the summer um, with the kind of players that they signed. Um Thomas Partey is a, is a prime example. Gabriel, left-footed centre-back, huge, hugely uh, impressive signing. Um, but he, he still hasn't quite worked out his team. And there's a sense uh, of, of, what, of what Arteta's doing at Arsenal, also with what Southgate is doing with England, which is basically he doesn't trust his defenders to play in a back four yet. So he's playing them in a back three or, you know, a back five, basically the wing-back system even though the players aren't necessarily, um, that, that isn't the, the, the best way of playing them. Bellerin has played normally in a four at the back. Tierney has normally played in a four at the back. I know he can play a bit of left wing back. He can cover a little bit of left, left centre back, but he's, I'd say, more naturally comfortable at, at, um, at a regular fullback, as is Bellerin. Gabriel um, is now playing uh, as a, as a three-man centre back line, whereas... Um, he, you know, he's he's used to playing in a in a four, and he's covering more space. Obviously, when the wing backs up the pitch, um, it, it does seem to me a, a little bit unusual that uh, Arteta with Arsenal and Southgate with England are kind of playing around with using five defenders, using wing backs when it doesn't seem to be suited to to the team that he's got. I'm also a bit surprised that they've signed Willian, who is pretty. I mean, he's on the way down. Um, maybe that's a little bit unfair because he was good for Chelsea last season, but he's only going one way. You know, he's never going to improve. He's obviously going to be on big wages, and their marquee, their record signing, Nicola Pepe, basically isn't playing. They're also playing um, their best player and top scorer last season, um, almost won the Golden Boot, and one of the best players in the Premier League. They're playing Pierre Emerick Aubameyang basically wide. They're playing him on the wing and messing around with putting him in weird positions. 
and playing Lacazette and Eddie Nketiah in the lone striker role. And both of them are vastly inferior to Aubameyang. So I'm, I'm absolutely perplexed as to why he's as to why he's um, putting Aubameyang out wide. If Lacazette is scoring loads of goals and you want to get both of them in the team, fair enough, but he isn't. It just seems to me really odd that you wouldn't play your best player in his in his best position. It's like Palace putting Zaha at right wing back. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I don't understand it. Um, <laughs> but but I don't want to be too negative. You know, the elements are there. Gabriel is there. Partey is there. Tierney has has um, taken like a Dr. Water to the to the Premier League. And Martinelli is coming back from injury. And obviously he was really exciting last season. So the the kind of building blocks are there. But I just think they need to figure out what system they want and, and, what, and what players they want in their strongest team in the same way that Southgate does for England. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of square pegs and round holes at Arsenal at the moment. And I also think that perhaps Arteta isn't brave enough to, to drop Lacazette and he's trying to shoehorn both him and Aubameyang into the team. And this is what we're seeing. And you do sort of think to yourself, when your star player's that good and he's not being utilised to his fullest potential, then maybe you have to make a tough decision. I don't think Arteta's brave enough to do that at the moment. But regarding Arsenal, they go up against Leeds on Sunday and Leeds themselves are currently five over par after being predicted 10th and sitting 15th at the moment. So with that in mind, Matthew, do you think the bookies got a little bit sucked into all things Bielsa before a ball was kicked? I think there, I think there is some element to that. You know, I've, I've been on this show and have you know, defended Leeds and Bielsa because because I had to put up with them a whole lot last season. And I did, yeah. And, and, the, and the media love it. Like I said, I was... I've had this since August last year, so, so don't worry about it. Um, I think there is some element to. I mean, I mean, it is it is a little bit harsh to sort of say they were they were caught up in because Leeds have been a a good side. You know, no one quite expected them to go and do to do a Wolves and finish seventh. I know, I know a couple of people did, but they probably got on the hype train a little bit. But Leeds have shown that they are a good side, a good side in the in the in the in the Premier League, and I don't want to sort of say this is gonna. You know, hold on to them you know, for the rest of the season. They will come good once their players are properly adjusted to the Premier League, and they've got and they've got some proper experience under their belts. Um, a couple of bad a couple of bad results, like the one against Crystal Palace, I think was just abhorrent. But at the same time, when they went to Aston Villa and absolutely trounced them, I think that just shows you that on their day they can be they can be pretty good. And so long as they can keep that up against you know, the the also rans of the Premier League, the likes of, you know, say the Fulhams, the West Broms, the Newcastles, the Burnleys, so on and so forth. They'll be absolutely fine. You know, where are they predicted to finish? 10th. I think that's probably where they will end up when the season, when the season comes, comes along, because the one thing that's always held Leeds back in the past couple of seasons has been, has been burnout. And the fact that, you know, in the championship, you've got multiple times when you've got to play Saturday and then straight away on the Tuesday. They won't get that this year, so their levels of energy will be able to keep up throughout the rest of the season. Whereas a lot of the, you know, other teams in the Premier League, they may they may get tired. You know, if say a Newcastle, for instance, go on an FA Cup run and they've got to get that dragged out. So I think I think tenth is roughly where they will finish. I think they as you said that they're over par now. But they'll they'll be um they'll be around they'll be around minus one they'll be under par or roughly around par when when the season comes to the end I'm still confident with that. So match with that confidence, Leeds have shipped eight in the last two matches. So at some point, does Bielsa say to himself, either stay true to myself and you know employ these tactics which are gung ho and overload and it's great for neutral to see, or does he sit down and think, well actually do you know what maybe I need to just have a little think about how I deal with the rigors of the Premier League? Yeah, it'll be. I, I think he has to do that at some point, given how um, how many goals they've conceded so far. And, you know, there is an argument to say, well, it's been a little bit crazy at the start of the Premier League, you know, because of COVID times and everyone's conceding loads of goals. Um, we saw Liverpool concede seven to Villa, United six to Spurs, etc. Um, so um, it, it's possible that just, you know, the lack of fans and all of that, which we've spoken about um, before, that's potentially hindering them. And that's maybe a factor in why they're conceding so many. But if that record continues and they're, you know, conceding four goals to the likes of, of Palace, again, I, I sound like I'm slagging off my own team on this <laughs> on this podcast, but Palace don't often score four, right? It's been years um, since that happened. So to, to be conceding the amount of goals they are, um, it's not really... It's not really sustainable because you're, you know, you're having to score five goals just to get a, a, a draw in the game. Do you know what I mean? So they are going to have to tighten up a little bit, I think. 
will he do that? That's a different question because Bielsa is very, I'm not going to say he's um, dogmatic, but he's very kind of enshrined in his principles. And that is the way that they play. That's the way that they play all the time against whoever away at Liverpool, at home to Fulham. No offence, um, any Fulham fans uh, who may or may not be listening. But that is the way that they play. And I think they are going to have to adapt, but it might take them a little bit. It might take Bielsa a bit of a while because that's the way he's always played against whatever opposition, at whatever ground, against whatever strength team that they're playing. That's just the way they play. I think they do need to tighten up because the way that their fullbacks kind of bomb on they were Palace's last goal against them um, to make it 4-1 at Selhurst um, the other week before the international break. Both fullbacks were miles up the pitch. Luke Ayling was 80 yards up the pitch. And Wilfred Zaha had absolutely no one around him. And realistically, that's just that's not going to end well for you. Do you know what I mean? You need to um, you need to have a bit of a sense of of when you're playing someone who is as strong as Palace down their left hand side with Van Aanholt and Zaha and all of that. You really need to make sure that you that you pick your moments rather than being kind of murder ball, a thousand percent running around blood and thunder all the time. So Matthew, you remember last week when you said that Everton are at their natural level after a, a rough run of results? Well, to be honest, mate, you're bang on the money because they're the only team that we can consider par at the moment. Tip seventh, currently seventh. So with that in mind, can you see much movement from this position at the end of the season? Um, no, I can't because I think if you take a look at where you know the rest of the League are oh, hang on, I've just got to sort. There you go. If you look at you know who's above them in the table and who's below them, you do think that there will be some some level of normality returning. Like Leicester, I know I sort of wrote them off uh, at points last year, but I can't see them managing to survive. You know, a year in Europe as well as being able to compete in the Premier League. You know, over the course of the season, so I think they will drop off. Man, Man City, we expect will be higher than where they are. Man United will be higher than where they are. Things will return to normality at the season. And it's just a case of, you know, are there six teams in the Premier League better than Everton? You can you can make that argument that, you know, the top six. Maybe someone like Arsenal could drop out and someone like Leicester, you know, will drop off to sixth. Um, but no, I can't see there being enough, you know, teams above them being so bad that they'll that they'll um that they'll you know be able to jump up to fourth. Nor do I see enough teams above you know below enough teams below them um putting on a great surge of form, you know, like a Burnley or a um let's say who's, who's like a Wolves or a West Ham below them and putting on a good run of form and jumping them to seventh or above seventh. So now I think seventh is roughly where they'll be maybe give them sixth, maybe give them eighth, but they'll be in and around that spot. With that in mind, Max, where's their quickfire regression come from? Is it a case of them overachieving at the start? And if that's the case, how do they get out of the block so quickly? Um, there's a sense of them overachieving at the start. Um, but at the same time, they've, they've made some really astute signings. The likes of Alan and Ducore and, um, and obviously James Rodriguez. Um, to be fair, in the last couple of games, they've been hampered by injuries and discipline issues. Obviously, Pickford was lucky not to get... Uh, sent off against Liverpool. Richarlison was. He got uh, a three-game ban. Uh, Dina and Coleman, who are absolutely essential to the team with their um, overlapping runs, particularly Coleman down the right, going down the outside as Rodriguez uh, tucks in a little bit. We all know about Luca Dina's wand of a left foot. Um, that that term is overused generally. <laughs> I think Dina is is. Um, I think it's accurate to say he's got a wand of a left foot. Um, and so they, they've been without some key players. You know they. They've had kind of injury issues at the back as well. Um, Coleman's been out the last couple of games, so John Joe Kenny had to play. Dina was out for a bit, so Nkunku, the young the young backup, had to play. Um, they've kind of chopped and changed a bit at centre-back. Um, I think Mina and Holgate have been swapping next to Michael Keane. So once they're back to their full-strength team, um, they'll be... They'll, they'll, I think they'll, they'll even be, be pushing to, towards the Champions League places because there's a big drop-off in... When the fullbacks are out, the the backups aren't quite at that level. Calvert Lewin has suffered without the creative presence of Richarlison. James Rodriguez has had kind of fewer players to link up with. He loves the crossfield um, ball to Dina um, from right to left, and that and that hasn't happened because of um, numbers not being quite there. You could say again that um, it's their own fault for for not maybe investing in some in some proper backup fullbacks, for example. 
But I think once they're back to full strength, they'll go back to the form that they had at the start of the season and they'll really, really be pushing for Europe. Matthew, the name Calvert-Lewin has been mentioned, so you know what we need now. <laughs> there we go. Right, so let's go back to our scientific trends. No kazoo, no goal. So does this mean that Calvert-Lewin's going to score this weekend? Um, yeah, more than like I'm just trying to think it did, because I remember because we held off, yes. off it um, last week. But then didn't he score for England? Well, does that right? I've not even watched any England games, so I don't even know. So... I was going to say, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, we were all busy watching the Scotland game. Exactly. Quite right, I think it needs to be said. I think he did. I'm not 100 percent sure, um, but yeah, we'll hold. It. We'll see. If, we'll see if it holds on for just uh, just for club level, and see what see whether or not it holds out. Yeah, it should be interesting. Excellent. Right. In teams that are sorry, in terms of teams that are over par, Liverpool are one of those at one over par, so they are very close to breaking even. So the you know the picture is not too bad, but it's not too great either. And Matthew, in terms of injuries, does it seem as if the house of cards could be collapsing? Yeah, it is. Uh, we've t- again, we've talked about this. The fact that um, Liverpool have been lucky over the past couple of years that basically they had a whole bunch of injuries when Jurgen Klopp first came in um, because everyone was getting used to his you know high intensity football. Then it all sort of levelled out once they got used to it. But now it just seems that the I, I don't think there's anything wrong. Or it, you can put something of it on Klopp, but they're just you know victims of the schedule because you can't play that high intensity intensity football during the middle of a truncated season. You know we saw that because they started to fall off uh, towards the end. You know after the restart, and now they're sort of kicking in now. I mean some of it isn't their fault. You know uh, Mo Salah with um, coming down with coronavirus. You can't you can't blame that one on Klopp. So I think he gets a pass on that one. Um, and there's been a couple, and Van Dyke with a broken leg, you, 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 that's not really him. But I think Jurgen Klopp does have to take some of the blame for not managing it as well as he could have, let's put it that way. So, no, much as we were talking about Miatzela Bielsa and whether or not he'll adapt, you do have to wonder if whether or not Jurgen Klopp is going to have to adapt. Not just with the players he uses, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold's injured, so yes, you bring in Neko Williams. Um, Joe Gomez is injured, so you bring in, I think it's Reese Williams is the next one up on that list. Um, you know, Andy Robertson's out, okay, bring in James Milner. He, he can he can deal with that. But there is there does have to be something to say whether or not the high-intensity, you know, counter-attacking, get the ball up the field as soon as possible, football is going ha- to stick around, or whether or not that's going to, have to you know take a bit of a back seat whilst they whilst they manage what is i think we can we can definitely class, classify it as a crisis at this stage well i was gonna make a point to max actually about you know methods that Klopp uses is there a similarity to the last days at dortmund where all that kind of football for years and then the tank was just empty not saying that this is going to be the last season of Klopp or anything but are we seeing something similar where he's pushed him pushed and pushed him over two and a bit seasons and now his toys are starting to break yeah, possibly. Maybe we've meet, we've uh, we've we've reached a point of diminishing returns in that he's pushed them to the absolute best that they can be. Last season, I think we can all agree, is one of the best um, best Premier League winning sides we've ever seen. Um, and obviously, that that discussion has to be had with how many titles they end up winning. So you know, we can look back in in five, ten, twenty years, and if they manage to win three um, in a row or whatever, if they manage to c- continue um, that. The, winning those titles and continue the the consistency at the very top of the game, you know, then we can start uh, relating them and comparing them to Mourinho's Chelsea or Ferguson's United, for example. Um, but th- they were very, very impressive last season. And that might be the absolute best that he could have got them to. Now, they have got a lot of younger players in the team who are capable uh, of improvement, definitely with their age profiles, you know, Gomez, uh, Robertson, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Alisson, um, uh, the the midfielder Oxlade Chamberlain, um, Naby Keita, even though he's been a little bit um, out of favour, Diogo Jota up front, players like that. So they have got players who've kind of got room to improve. It's not like it's the last dance for them. You know, they're not. It's not their last go at a title before the the golden generation of Liverpool players dies out and, and retires. But we might be getting to a point where they literally can't improve anymore. Meanwhile. Um, all the other teams around them are improving. Even teams like Villa and, and Palace and the, the teams coming up from the championship like Leeds and Sheffield United and Wolves are getting better and better. Other teams have now got the capability of buying good players, kind of European standard players. And, and we might get to a point where he can't take them any further. 
um, as in they can't improve much beyond how well they played last season and everyone else is just catching up to them now. I think you're right to be honest because yes it's regression but when you're at such a high level you can only go down because the way they went on that incredible unbeaten streak you know bar the sort of mini collapse at the end where they didn't need to do too much you know they could have got even more points so you're sort of thinking that was Herculean in terms of effort what more can they do even just to try and match that or try and win a Premier League title you've got to be bang on it again so you do sort of wonder if it's you know they paid the ultimate price in winning that Premier League title but because of that, they might not get success in the years that follow and perhaps success they might deserve. So it's going to be interesting to see if injuries really do curtail their plans. But in terms of another team where, should we say, they're running on empty or the ideas well, we're certainly running dry, it's Burnley. Now, they have a game in hand, so their three over par is slightly weighty. But at the same time, Matthew, their early form suggests that they're not going to claim three additional points anytime soon. No, they're not. And again, I think this is something that we've touched on many times before. And, and you know, you just touched on it there. I think the well has sort of run out with Burnley. I've made the comparisons before um, with Wigan. That you, you kept thinking that, oh, this is the year, you know, a team punching above their weight. They, they, they can't stay up again another year. Oh, wait, they did. Oh, you think, oh, now this is definitely the year they're going to go. Oh, well, they, they stayed up. And, you know, yeah, good, good on them. But there is... There is just a case of we have reached probably reached the end of the natural cycle of Sean Dyche and Burnley and there. No, it's it it has been great. You know, I think what five seasons in a row, maybe six. I'm losing count now. Five. Um, five in the end. Whatever. Yeah. Um, in the in the Premier League, that's a very good achievement for them. So you know, so all credit to them. But I think it is just time for things to they will probably you know this is probably the end of it for them. And it is just a case of whether or not. They've they're going to build a squad, you know. When January when January comes around, are they going to buy players to you know keep keep them in the Premier League, or are they going to you know reinvest in such a way that they'll be back in the you know in the Championship and then make another run for the Premier League like they did like they did last time they went around. Um, but when that does come around, I think questions do really have to be asked of what's going to happen with Sean Dyche because. Now, as you mentioned with the Jurgen Klopp, has he taken them as far as he can go? You know, he's taken them to Europe once by finishing seventh. That is never going to happen again. Although I'm pretty sure we said that about Leicester finishing the Champions League and look what happened. Um, but I do think that it's probably now Sean Dyche will, at the end of the season, probably find him find himself looking for another job. Whether it's not a resignation or the Burnley board decide now we want to change direction. I think Dyche will probably will probably go and he'll be looking for another Premier League job. Or, say it quietly, if the Euros don't go well, I think he's probably next in line to take Southgate's job, personally. Wow, that is a claim. I think, actually, it's their sixth season. I do apologise, because they came up in 2015, the season before Bournemouth from Watford. So, yes, it's their sixth season. But I think that's probably one season too many in terms of Deitch's tenure. That We've said before that you're never going to get a Ferguson or a Wenger-type dynasty anymore. I think six years is probably about the maximum you can squeeze out of a club. Eddie Howe, Poch... I think, it's, unfortunately, it's going that way for Burnley. And also, Max, three being the magic number, or not so much, actually, in terms of goals. That's all they've scored this season. For, for all their endeavour up top, it's been very frustrating in the final third of the pitch. Yeah, it has. It has. It has. And obviously, they've not ever scored, you know, hatfuls of goals at Premier League level. But they've always been defensively solid enough that scoring one or two gives them a really good chance of uh, of winning the game. And that hasn't been the case this season. Now, again, they've had um, problems with injury. You know, they've been kind of cycling through the, the right-backs, Bardsley and, and Lowton. They're not sure who they want. Tarkovsky and me, who've been ever-present for basically every single game under Sean Dyche and are super solid, super reliable uh, Premier League players. Both of them have been out at points this season. And, you know, they've, they've really struggled with the likes of Kevin Long and Jimmy Dunn and people like that coming in who are just not experienced at Premier League level because Tarkovsky and me play so often and they're so consistent and they're so um, regular with their fitness. They're always available that when the time came when they, they weren't available, Bernie didn't really know how to deal with it. And there's obviously a big drop off uh, between the starting centre backs and and, uh, and and the reserve ones. Um and so, and so they've really struggled and it might get to the point now where, where Dyche feels like he has to leave because he, he's obviously overachieving with Burnley every year by getting them, you know, 10th and around in and around the top half when most managers, you'd say, probably the best they could do with that Burnley squad would be lower mid-table, kind of just about avoiding relegation. He publicly um, publicly criticised the club in, in allowing the contracts of Jeff Hendrick, for example, 
who moved to Newcastle um, to go down. Um, obviously, Aaron Lennon left on a free, a couple of others left, and the replacements weren't really signed. And so now they've even got a smaller squad than the small squad they had last year, already small squad they had last year. So I think, to be honest, it is coming towards the end. And that's not a reflection on Dyche at all, but he's done a very good job there, essentially overachieving with a pretty poor and, and thin squad and not much money to work with. He's done a really good job with them. Not many people could do a better job with Burnley than Dyche has but I think he's taken them as far as they can go. Yep, I'd certainly agree with that one, Max. I think he's literally just hit the end of the road, unfortunately. So let's go to the overachievers now and lead the scoreboard by a country mile at Aston Villa. Predicted eighth, sorry, predicted 18th, currently sixth, and with a game in hand, they're 12 under par. So Matthew, just how is it going so right for the villains? Um, personally, personally, I want to know when these predictions were made, whether or not they were done, you know, you know, two weeks before the start of the season, one week to start of the season, because they were captured a week before the start of the season, so before a ball had been kicked. Okay, before a ball. Okay, that's fine. Because um, I'm just trying to work out because a lot of that would have been because they did a lot, a couple of deals in their business was quite was quite late in the transfer window. So the signing of Ollie Watkins, for instance, I don't think I don't I think that would would have been done after this, after this prediction was made. So he's been someone that's taken the lead. No. Not taking the league, but taking Aston Villa by storm someone has been has been a fantastic addition to them. They made some some other very some other very good signings and more importantly than that, you know, keeping the core of this the core of the squad together and be using that as a you know as a stepping stone as a stepping stone to progression rather than, you know, lot a lot of talk will always surround Jack Grealish, even in the situation that they were in. So the fact they managed to keep hold of him, for instance, who's now, you know, the next great thing since Paul Gascoigne. Yeah, <laughs> not for me. But but the the hype has been there. He's very good, but he's not that. Um, but yeah, some of the players they've managed to keep hold of and buy has just been fantastic for them. They're just they're just you no know, kicking, uh, kicking on from it. I don't think yeah, whoever predicted them to get 18th and no, that's re- that's relegation. I think that's very 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 harsh on them. And I want to know who wrote that because that's I, I don't want to say stupidity, but that that's very very wrong for them to have done that. Um, so yeah, I think sixth is probably they're not going to be anywhere near sixth come the end of the season. Um, probably around mid table, but I think a lot of people just been no, like we expected Marcelo Bielsa and Leeds to take the Premier League by surprise a bit. I think Aston Villa have taken them by surprise, but things will things will peter out back to the norm because you know they won't they won't be able to they'll they'll drop points against the you know the big six for instance, and that'll all add up. So I don't I don't I don't expect to be anywhere near sixth come the end of the season. Well, Max. After beating the drop last season, they are far from the relegation zone this time round. And the last team to do something similar was Leicester in 2016. So can the great escape once again be turned into great success? <laughs> um, I don't think Villa are going to win the league. No, not having it. Gone. I said, you're not having that. You're not having that wild prediction. No, nah, no, I don't <laughs> think so. I don't think so. Um, to be honest, um, yeah, it's, it's a great story and it'd be fantastic for the neutral. They have, I, I'm not going to say they're just going to, plummet down the table again and finish 16th 17th because I think they've shown enough in the first eight games obviously obviously um it is very early in the season um it's it's early to be drawing um kind of conclusions about what they're going to do for the rest of the season but at this point I think we can say what they've shown so far is is very impressive they made a lot of good signings I've spoken about them before I'll speak about them again Emmy Martinez in goal looks every cent a Premier League player um, Matty Cash at right back has settled in really nicely. Ross Barkley is showing the form that um, that preceded his all his England appearances, and he might well get back in the England Euro squad. If you think about the, the kind of dynamism and energy he has compares, compared to someone like Harry Winks or James Ward-Prowse, you know, who who aren't really at his level in my opinion. Although to be fair, he has been consistent inconsistent in the past but Barkley is showing some really consistently good form he's loving that link up with Grealish Grealish is different level different gravy what a player please play him every single game Gareth Southgate um, and Ollie Watkins has has started scoring as well and so um, if you even consider the likes of Bertrand Traore who made waves in France after signing uh, from Chelsea and now Villa bought him for 15 to 20 million he's a really good player as well who's yet to be kind of integrated into that group so I think they've definitely shown enough that that they that they can finish top half based on what's happened so far 
Um, and I'm just obviously they've had new signings to kind of supplement the group. But I'm I'm really surprised and pleasantly surprised with with how well they've done, given um, how how badly they played last season and how leaky they were at the back. They seem to have completely turned it around. Okay, so that leads us nicely on to Leicester. So Matthew, they're seven under par, predicted eighth, currently top. When you see these pre-season odds, do you think the bookies were a bit harsh in terms of their pricing? Um, yeah, I think they were. I think um, somewhat victim of their victim of their own success. I think was probably what most people were thinking of. You know, they now as I as I touched on earlier, yes, they did very well last season, but can they do it again whilst you know competing in the Europa League? And Leicester do look like a side that could go very far in the Europa League, and it's just a case of how much is that going to affect. Uh, affect their standing on the table, similar to similar to Wolves last year, in effect, because they went far in the in the Europa League, and then all of a sudden their league form started to dip at the end. So from two seasons in a row, I think they were seventh, then they dropped down to eighth. So I think that's probably what most people were thinking Leicester Leicester were going to do. Um, so I think they'll they'll be fine now, and now as they are proven to be. But it is just a case of whether or not they'll be able to keep it up over the course of the season. And I don't I don't think they will uh, personally. I don't think that squad's really um, big enough to to handle the quote. They they've had some strength and depth, but not not to the likes of other sides. So I think roughly you know seventh eighth will probably be where they where they're going to finish up this season. So I think so I think the bookies will be right. Just give it a bit of time. But Max, with Brendan Rodgers taking his players to Anfield and the Reds' defensive woe, shall we say, in terms of injuries, I guess there's no better time to try and solidify your top spot in the division. Yeah, very much, very much. It's the absolute perfect time for, for Leicester to be playing them because not only are, are they top of the table and above Liverpool, meaning Liverpool kind of have the pressure of knowing that if they don't get a result, they're just kind of... Uh, Leicester will pull away from them at the top of the table, although you know not an insurmountable lead by any stretch. It is early in the season, um, but also they're they're playing them at a perfect time in terms of the injuries that they've got. And it might be the case that every single one of Jurgen Klopp's first choice backline will be out. Trent might be out, Gomez might be out, Van Dijk might be out, and Robertson might be out all at the same time. And while they have strengthened um, their squad up front, the likes of Jota, um, for example. Um, I, I think they are really they're really thin on the ground at the back. And Timikas is the new left back they signed. is um, He's very new, very unproven. Milner might be able to play at fullback, but he's obviously not got the he's not got the physicality he once had. He's more of a midfielder, not exactly a natural fullback to be dealing with the wingers. Um, Leicester use you know people with the pace of Harvey Barnes, for example. Um, Neko Williams is obviously unproven at Premier League level. Matip might um will probably play but he's had injury issues he hasn't exactly been a stable feature in the team and then you know that if if Gomez is out as well as Van Dijk they're going to have to turn to one of their youngsters in Nathaniel Phillips or Reese Williams and Jamie Vardy will be licking his lips and that's why I've got him in my fantasy football team honestly put the house on Leicester to win this weekend that's what I'm saying I think Liverpool's amazing run at Anfield finally comes to an end this weekend I can just see a Leicester win but Matthew Southampton they're seven under par Predicted 11th, currently 4th. The big question is, can they stay in that position come the end of the season? Um, no, they, they can't. Similar, similar to what I said about Everton, I think that the, the good teams in the division will eventually will eventually spring back up. You know, like the likes of Man United won't be around that won't be around that spot for the rest of the season. Man City almost certainly. So I don't I I'm just trying to think what, how it, it is just a case of how far down can they drop compared to where they are. If you give you know four four of the, if you give the Champions League spots to four of the regular top six in whatever order you wish to you wish to put it in, you keep Leicester in and around there. You keep Everton in and around there. I think I think seventh might be a possibility for them. You know, much in the same way that you know as we said, Wolves in the past have done it, or Burnley have done it in the past, have uh, finished seventh. I think that's. A realistic, a realistic target for them because they do, they do have a very, they do have a very good side and a very good manager who, you know, I, I, as much as I mentioned Pochettino to be the Man United boss earlier, I think Hassan Hüttel is probably in that in in that same bracket that his next move will be to a big a big club, be it an Arsenal, be it a Spurs, be it a Chelsea, whatever. So I think I think that's so they've got the manager to do it, but I don't think they have they have a good squad, but not quite the right squad to mount a Champions League battle. I think uh, you know, a scrappy Europa League spot is probably where they're 
probably going to be realistic for them. I've gone down as 10th, I reckon. I think a respectable top half finish, but I don't think they're going to trouble any European places. But Max, if we look at the natural order of the Premier League, shall we say, do you think one team can upset the apple cart, not win the whole thing, but break into the top four? Or will the big six finally all wake up at the same time and take up their natural places? Um, I think there will be a regression to the mean in that, you know, City and United aren't going to finish in the bottom half of the table. And ultimately, the the traditional big six are going to finish there or thereabouts, you know, definitely in the, all in the top half, I would say. But if there is going to be a season, I don't think Leicester... Um, winning the league, or and that that ilk of thing is gonna is gonna happen again for a very long time, if ever. But if there's going to be a season where, as you say, someone new and unexpected breaks into the top four Champions League spots or the top six, the European spots, I think it is going to be this season, and it will be really interesting to see um, whether um, Southampton or Villa or a team who are currently performing really well can manage to make that extra step, can really build on the start that they've had this season, can deal with the big six, the traditional big six, um, coming back into form and getting themselves back up where they should be um, based on the squads they have. Um, and yeah, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see. When we get fans back, whenever that is, we don't know. It might be um, before the end of the season, it might be next season. Will that then suddenly just click back to exactly the way things were before lockdown and before Project Restart and all of that, it'll be really interesting to study and I, I can't wait to see it myself. Talking of a rise, Tottenham are currently four under par as they were predicted to be six. They're second in the league, Matthew, but these odds are obviously taken before a flurry of business took place after that Everton defeat. So, you know, do we have to sort of provide a bit more context to their comparison? Yeah, I, yeah, things, but uh, no, as I touched on with Aston Villa, this, this is somewhat being um, drawn in with, you know, this is why you don't want to make too many predictions before the end of the transfer window because you never know precisely precisely what's going to happen. Um, Spurs, I think, are, will definitely take where they are now. It, it is just a case of how how far can they how far can they can they keep this up? Because as we talked about, the likes of Man, the likes of Man City are what you know five points behind them with a game in hand. You'd think you'd think that they'll be able to make up that gap pretty pretty easily. Um, so they'll be breathing down their necks. But they have put themselves in a very good position to, because you know, I'm I'm assuming that the uh, mantra for this season was to finish in the Champions League, especially after they fell short last season, and they've got themselves in a very good very good position to to start that. And it's just a case of they they probably will drop off, but can they keep it at somewhat of a level um, to be able to to be able to have en- enough of a season? I think a lot of that will will be around keeping the key players fit. You know, we said we said that about all the teams, but I think Spurs more than any, if one of the front three of Bale, uh, Sun Hyun Min or Harry Kane gets injured, you know, for a long time, that's that's gonna be a problem because I don't see who's gonna be you know, who's the next man up to replace either of them and still produce at that same same quality level. Well when we beat City at the weekend there'll be eight points behind us. So moving swiftly on, Max, West Ham they're five under par, and more importantly, they've got some easier fixtures on the horizon. So they've navigated through that choppy start, and everyone thought, oh God, this is going to be awful. They should now look at that and think, actually, here's a chance to get some real points on the board. Yeah, exactly. There should be real, genuine optimism um, at the London Stadium based on how well they've come through, um, based on how well they've come through the, the, the really, really tricky fixtures at the start of the season. Um, it's really unusual that you play such a excuse me such a uh, such a consistent run of really really tricky games and they've done they've done really well i think they've also made a couple of tactical tweaks which have really um which have really improved for example they've put, started putting four nails centrally uh, rather than out on the left wing which is seems obvious to say because he's an, an attacking midfielder he's not a winger um he's much more natural in the center and they've they've basically cemented antonio's uh, spot up front They've uh, strengthened at right back, signing uh, Soufal, who gave Antonio the, uh, Antonio the assist against Man City. Um, Soufal's re- replaced Fredericks, who was a little bit um, a little bit erratic sometimes at right back. Aaron Cresswell's form is really good. He suddenly um, looks um, looks getting back to uh, the wonderful left foot. Although I'm not going to say he's quite at that Luca Dina level. He's maybe got a uh, yeah, he's he's got a decent left foot, but maybe not a wand. Um, but yeah, they've done really well. 
And I, I think they should be really, really optimistic based on where they are on the table, considering uh, the, the tricky start that they had. Right, both your teams are under par. So Matthew, predicted bottom, currently 17th. You'd take that on the final day, wouldn't you? Yes, I would take that on the final day, but I don't want, I don't want this to be some great celebration. <laughs> the, fact that we're, the fact that we're overperforming after eight games in which we've only managed to score, I think, like seven goals. I'm not, yeah, seven goals we managed to score. Whoopee. And we, we should be doing a lot. We should be doing a lot better than that, no, than that given. We had a bit of a tough start to the season, but once we managed to get things back in order... Um, God, that look, that look, oh, you just made me think of the look makes <laughs> even worse. Oh, but yeah, yeah, so many, so many squandered points, so many squandered opportunities. It could, we could be a whole lot better and things could be looking a whole lot rosier. But, you know, well, we have, we have, we played eight games and we've got four points. That puts us on course for 19 points over the course of the season. So don't, so don't um, belittle me too much if I'm not overly happy the fact that we're performing slightly better than we should be. Okay, so hopefully Max is going to be more cheerier because Palace are opening a few eyes all of a sudden. Currently eighth after a 13th prediction, five under par. Is this the upper limit in terms of where the Eagles can end up soaring this season? Uh, yeah, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I don't think we're going to finish uh, any higher than eighth. And I, I, to be honest, I expect us to finish a little bit lower. Um, that's not to say that there haven't been improvements. You know, we've made a, a tactical switch, which um, Tifo Football, uh, I don't know if you know the YouTube yeah. channel, do kind of tactical analyses of, um, of, of the Premier League and football generally. They did a really good uh, uh, a video on the tactical switch from 4-3-3 to 4-4-2 and how that's really unlocked Wilfred Zaha um, uh, just give him a lot more creative freedom, gets him up the pitch and you can see that it's been effective in that he's had way more goal involvements, goals and assists at the start of this season. He scored more goals already this season than he did in the whole of last season and he's obviously the talisman at points, he's been the captain and he's he's our best player, he's our key player and so to, to have a change to the system, which has benefited him so much, it's benefited the team as a whole. And I know you should never, ever what if as a as a football fan, because, you know, fans of any other team could also say what I'm about to say. But had we not conceded a pretty dodgy penalty against Everton and had we not conceded a 95th minute deflection against um, against the team from Brighton and Hove, um, we, we'd be we'd be fourth. And I, as I say, I don't want to get into too many what ifs because every every fan could could make those kind of points. But we've been we've started really well. Um, it's just how how much can we keep it up? I don't expect us to finish eighth, but based on the early signs, there is some promise that we might be able to get in and around the top half. Yeah, it's certainly a great turnaround from the end of last season when you know what was it one point out of twenty four. So things are looking rosy for Palace. In terms of the four teams we won't have time to mention, Newcastle and Brighton both one over par, Wolves and Chelsea both two over par. No real stories there. They're sort of just, you know, where they are really. But we can revisit this later in the season to see if things change. And with about 60 seconds to go, Matthew, we're all Scots, aren't we? Over to you. Yeah, um, trying to make me down to 60 seconds. But the whole reason I'm sort of emotional and, you know, even though I'm not Scottish, emotional about this is because, you know, as a Wales fan, even though I wasn't there for all the pain and suffering that has been since, you know, from the 1958 to the year 2016, I can sort of, you know, I can sort of understand where the Scots are going through with this. You know, much as every, you know, all the Welsh fans have gone through 77 with Joe Jordan's handball, Paul Bowden's penalty miss against Romania, missing out in the playoffs against Russia in 2004. I've only, I, I haven't seen all of that, but I know what, I know what it is to go through it because my granddad's experienced it and all that sort of stuff. So for Scotland to end their 23 year their 23 year, you know, tournament drought, I think it's just, it's just fantastic. And it's, it's not just because, you know, it's Scots and you know British. Everyone wants to you know be be chumming with each other. I think I think I think it's just a great I think it's just a great story. And even though you know Fulham man Alexandra Mitrovic was part of the reason to get, I wasn't too dis- disappointed because of the because of the whole mega story. Um, so it's going to be fantastic to see you know all the reaction and everyone following Scotland next year. Although I would just say one thing, and I mentioned this to a Scottish friend of mine, basically after they qualified, they waited 23 years to get to a major football tournament, and their reward is they get two games in Glasgow and one <laughs> game in Wembley. It doesn't quite have the same resonance as you know when Wales did it. Oh, we're going, we're going round France, or you know, they, you know, or to break your course to um, to go to the World Cup in Brazil, for instance. 
you you travel into your it's down the road where you go to it's not that much of a european tour when you don't have to leave the country for it but yeah it's a fantastic story and you know all credit to them yeah i mean it is sod's law but they'll take it wherever they play they'll be happy to be there and we have reached full time on that note so just need to do the admin which is as simple as thanking my two great guests this afternoon so thank you to max a sterling return to the show for you mate yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Cheers, buddy. And Matthew, thanks for wearing the captain's armband this afternoon. I hope you and Max will be both joining me next Tuesday along with Cole. Yep, not a pleasure. More maths than I'm more I'm used to doing <laughs> ever since I left school, but I'm happy to be here as always. Yep, forget the maths next week. We're going back to pure football, thankfully. So with that said, it just leads me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network.